Turn again with me in God's word to Song of Solomon in chapter 6, and particularly looking at verses 4 to 13. Over the past two weeks, we've been in this section of the Song of Solomon, beginning at chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, And it's a section in which something dreadful happens. The woman who has been very close uh, to her husband, who has enjoyed fellowship in in the closest sense with him, has now backslidden. The Christian who loved Christ, who had walked with him, and who had produced fruit uh, for his name's sake, has now become spiritually lazy and lethargic. She slipped. And Christ has come to knock on the door of her heart, to seek admittance, to seek communion with her, to have a time of fellowship together. And she's out and out refused. She's given the weakest and flimsiest of excuses She just can't be bothered. And it's that spiritual uh, backsliding, that tiredness, that that spiritual weakness that we think of here. Her heart is awake, that is, she's regenerate, but she's asleep. It's set in. And it will take some time for it to shift. And although Christ has been merciful, he's continued to knock at the door of her heart. He doesn't remain there forever, but he withdraws himself. And we thought of that like the sun going behind a cloud, so that no longer is the heat and the light felt. Christ withdraws himself that she would come and seek him. But she does. She, she is sorry for what she has done. She regrets it. She realizes her mistake. She owns her sin. And she comes in her sorrow to seek after Christ, that she may be able to fellowship with him once again. The problem is she can't find him. It's not simply a case, and we we have to learn this as children. We're learning this lesson in our house. Saying sorry doesn't necessarily remove the consequences for sin. Consequences sometimes can remain. And there's a consequence. Because of her refusing Christ, when she goes to seek him, now she can't find him. She has to really seek. She's searching. She's going through the city. She comes to the place of public worship and the watchmen uh, give her a hard time. That is, her conscience is smitten and she's ashamed because of what she's done. But she can find no peace. And we saw her, how she's left in that condition of begging weaker Christians that if they have fellowship with Christ, if they find him, that they would put in a good word for her because she just can't find Jesus. Then we saw last week in in the section from verse 9 of chapter 5 to verse 3 of this chapter, we saw what happened next. There's this dialogue between the daughters of Jerusalem and the woman. A dialogue in which they do a good thing for her. They give her true Christian fellowship. That is, they, they ask her questions, not about the weather, not simply about her hobbies. They're asking her questions about Christ and her relationship with Christ. And so they ask her, first of all, who is this? This person that you desire, you're charging us, you're adjuring us that we would put in a good word for you. Who is this beloved? Why is he better than anyone else? And it means that the woman has to meditate upon Christ. 
which he does. It's a good thing to do. And, and, and as you see there, verses 10 uh, to 16 of chapter 5, she meditates at length upon Christ and his attributes, uh, particularly his person, not his work, but his person, who he is in himself and why he is desirable. And it's interesting that though she had backslidden, though she'd been lethargic spiritually, in verse 16 she says, he is altogether desirable or altogether lovely. Because the Lord has allowed her to get so low, she has now risen to this point where she's saying, Christ is so desirable to me. That's a good thing. That's one of the reasons why Christ allows us at times to lose a sense of his closeness, lose a sense of his comfort, so that we will go out and desire him more, and he will become all the more lovely to us. And then that fellowship continues into chapter 6, because then they ask her, where has your beloved gone? Because we want to find him with you. All true Christian fellowship has that effect, doesn't it? Where it draws people with us. It draws weaker or more immature Christians together with us to seek the beloved. And her answer to this question is that her beloved has gone to the garden. He has gone to the place of public worship. He has gone to see other Christians. And he's gone to see and gather there to graze. But it's interesting that she left it there in verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Notice that here is faith. Here is faith restored in her. She's not left doubting. She's not left lacking assurance. She is here in faith saying Christ is mine. I am Christ's and Christ is mine. We mutually belong to each other. And so in this sense we can take a step back from the whole, the whole scene and say it has been good for her to fall into sin. Because she's reached a higher point. In one sense we don't want anyone to fall into sin. Of course we don't. It's not, it's not good to fall into sin. It's to your hurt. And yet God can even bring good out of evil. That he can bring a fall into sin. He can bring out of that something excellent. Because here she is expressing faith and repentance and love. And that takes us in to this next section. It's really a continuation of the same thing. But we're left really with two questions. First of all, how will Christ respond to her coming back to him? That's a big question. We've seen what she's been thinking about when Christ has been far from her. But how will Christ respond? And then the second thing I want us to think about is what has Christ been doing behind the scenes? So those two things. How will Christ respond to her? And what has Christ been doing behind the scenes? Well, first of all, how will Christ respond? Well, we see this answer in verses 4 to 10. And it, it just comes almost unannounced. There's no break. There's no, uh, nothing to, to, to lead into this. It's just immediately, you are beautiful as Tirza, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Christ here pours out his love. 
Does it surprise you? Does it surprise you that this woman who has fallen into sin, she has been so spiritually lazy that Christ had knocked at the door of her heart and said, I just want to spend some time with you. And she said, no, I can't be bothered. Does it surprise you that Christ is here now declaring his love for her? I think for us it maybe does surprise us. Because what do you do and what do I do when people offend us? What is the natural tendency of our heart? We give people the cold shoulder. If they do come back to us saying sorry, we want to make sure that they really are sorry. We want to make sure they really know how much hurt they have given to us, what they've put us through. And so we might be tempted to give them a lecture before we accept their apology. But here Christ says simply, you are beautiful, my love. Notice there that phrase, my love. My love. We've met it before. He's used it before. The love that Christ has for his church and for the individual Christians in his church. Maybe reminds us of the the prodigal son. Where the son comes back in repentance to his father and he's saying... Don't treat me anymore as a son. Treat me instead as one of your hired servants. Because that, I don't even deserve that, but that's the most I can hope for. And maybe we think that's the way way it will be when we've backslidden from Christ. And we've returned to him. Perhaps we think that we'll be reduced a peg or two. We'll be down a level or two. That we come back as a second class Christian. We have to prove ourselves in order to earn our way back into a relationship with Christ. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't accept that. Just as a father, he immediately begins to celebrate his son who was dead is alive again. He was lost, but he's now found. And he pours out nothing but love. And that's what we see here. You are beautiful as Tirza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. Tirza was a city in the north of Israel. It was one of the most prominent cities in the north, um, so much so that when Israel divided into north and south, uh, Tirzah became the capital city for, for quite a number of the kings at that time. It was a beautiful city. And so we have here Tirzah, one of the best cities of the north, and Jerusalem, the best city in the south. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, two remarkable cities, Lovely, beautiful, but also strong cities. And that's why we've got the military metaphor here. Awesome as an army with banners. These are two phenomenally beautiful, but yet also strong and safe and secure cities. And Jesus says the church is like these well-protected, well-organized, beautiful cities. It's an army with banners. It's not a rabble. It's not chaos, but a well-organized army. And Jesus is here introducing uh, that metaphor of the Christian warfare. The church is an army. The church is fighting. You and I, day by day, are waging a warfare against sin in our hearts. We fight against spiritual forces of evil and darkness all around us. We have to put on the armor of God in order to withstand. We fight and we fight. The Christian life is not a peaceful life. It's not a life that you can coast through. You have to to be engaged 
in the fight. Jesus here declares his love. But I want you to see that this is not a case of Jesus turning a blind eye to sin. Jesus is not simply just ignoring what has gone before. But rather he's responding to her repentance. She has sinned. She made a terrible mistake. One that she has lamented. She was spiritually lazy. She missed out on communion with Christ. In fact, she was refusing him admittance into her heart. But Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to this. He withdrew from her for a time so that she would learn a lesson. He withdrew from her for a time so that she would desire him more than she had ever desired him ever before. And now she is truly repentant. We've seen that already. She's repentant because she's gone seeking him. Remember that she did get up. She did get dressed. She went out of the door of her house and she went into the city seeking Christ. She went to the places that she'd sought him before. She'd been praying, calling for him. She went to the ministers and the elders and she submitted to that bruising and beating she got from them. She's gone to the weaker Christians. She's asked them to help her find him. And her faith has overcome. By meditating on Christ, she has said, this is my beloved and this is my friend. This is someone who has repented of her sin and someone who is seeking Christ. And friends, I want us to see from this passage that Jesus delights in repentance. He delights in it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and he is just. He doesn't make us go through penance to prove ourselves. No, he receives us and accepts us. Notice even here in verse 5, he says, Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. What are these eyes? Well, we've seen the eyes before. These eyes that he, he formerly described as dove's eyes, they were so singular in their gaze looking at Christ. Well, these eyes have lost their focus, haven't they? They've turned away to other things, to her own ease and comfort. But now her eyes, these eyes of faith and love, they're back focused on Christ. And Jesus says, these eyes are overwhelming me. They're, they're so focused on me. Such is this, the strength of this repentance. He's like, turn them away from me. Now, he's not saying that. We, we don't take that in, in a literal sense. Stop, stop looking in faith to Christ. That's not what he's saying here. But he's speaking here of the, the acceptance of that repentance. It pleases him what she has done. And notice further. See verse 5b through to 7. Do those words ring any bells? As, as we read them. Remember the, the time we were speaking of, of Christ praising the church in a way that we wouldn't praise our wives. We, we don't tend to praise uh, the teeth like flocks of ewes and so on. We talked about that. This is language from chapter 4. These verses 5 to 7 are a replica of those verses there at the start of chapter 4. Verses that Christ spoke in praise of the church before she fell into sin. And now here he is repeating them after her fall in her restoration. I think there's a very important lesson here. 
that lesson is that the love of Christ has not diminished. When we fall into sin and we are restored, Christ does not love us less. It's not a case that there's a a limited amount of love that Christ has for us and that we can waste it. It gets whittled away little by little, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, and then we're done with chances and that's it. Now the love of Christ is so full, it's so rich that he receives sinners and he restores them. And even though we may fall away for a time, yet he draws us back. His love is great. We may be quick to turn aside from Christ, but Christ is not quick to turn aside from us. If you look at verses 8 to 9, you see here that he still has a singular focus for the church. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. There are plenty of other people that Christ could bestow his love on. And yet, verse 9, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother. You see, Christ has that singular love for his church. And so she is praised, verse 10, praised even by those around her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And again, we've got that military uh, metaphor there. Friends, the lesson of this is this. We think, perhaps, that Christ will be slow to restore us when we fall into temptation. But the lesson of the Bible is that Christ is eager for your restoration. Perhaps some of you today are in a backslidden state. That is, that you're not as close to Christ as you once were. Perhaps there is that spiritual laziness in your heart, that there have been many opportunities for fellowship with Christ, and yet you've missed them because you've refused Christ. He's been calling you to pray, and you've said, no, I don't want to pray, and so you don't. He's been calling you to worship, and you say, I don't want to go. I'd rather uh, spend time by myself alone at home, or do something else, and so you've refused Christ. Or or perhaps there have been other things Christ has been calling you to do, to meditate on him, to think deeply about the scripture, and you've said, no, I'm not going to do that. And because of those actions, because of your folly, you've been left wandering around going, I don't know where Jesus is anymore. I don't feel close to him, I can't find him. And perhaps through these sermons, I hope through these sermons, you've been thinking, I would like to get back to Christ, to be close to him once again, to be near him. But there's something at the back of your mind, we doubt, and it's niggling away, and it's saying, will he receive me? Will he receive me? Friends, the lesson of this passage is, he is more eager to receive you than you are to return to him, because he is gracious. He is gracious. And he is loving. We think Christ will be slow to restore us. But think of the the example of Peter. Peter who denied his saviour three times over. At a time in which he should have spoken up. Because no one else was speaking up for Christ. Remember in John's gospel. Where Jesus took Peter aside and said. Do you love me? And three times over he asked him that. And what did Jesus say when Peter said, you know all things, you know that I love you? Did 
Did Jesus do what the Roman Catholic priests do? Did he prescribe penance to him? You've sinned. You will be forgiven if you say a certain number of Hail Marys. Or if you go and say a certain number of other prayers. Or you go and do some other deed. Only then will I receive you back. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says to Peter, feed my sheep. He commissions Peter to go out as an apostle. Something that he had previously called him to do. Something that he had previously instructed him to do. He had sent uh, the 12 disciples out on numerous occasions to do particular tasks. And here is a fallen believer. And Jesus recommissions him. He sends him out again. Feed my sheep. It's what I wanted you to do all the way from the beginning. You see, Christ was not slow to restore Peter, although Peter's sin was great. Or think about John Mark. Do you remember how uh, on that first missionary journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas went out and they took with them John Mark, who was a cousin of Barnabas. But John Mark fell away, didn't he? He he didn't want to. He was, for whatever reason, he slid back. And, And on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take Mark, give him a second chance, and Paul is adamant that he will not go with Mark. And there's this no small disagreement between them. But what happens? Although there was that disagreement, we see later on in 2 Timothy, the last of the Pauline epistles, we see that Paul says this, Mark is now very useful to me. He's been restored. The Christian grace of reconciliation. Mark has been restored. And that's what Jesus does. He restores believers. He restores us to one another. But more importantly, he restores us in fellowship with God. Isn't that not what the history of Israel teaches us? That so often they fell into sin and yet they're restored. They're brought back. God pleads with them. And Hosea 14 verse 4 says... I will heal their apostasy. Or we could translate it, I will heal their backsliding. I will heal their turning away from me. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. Friends, if you're worrying in the back of your mind whether Christ will receive you because you've sinned against him, listen to a verse like that. He is willing to heal your apostasy. He is willing to heal you and love you freely and to turn his anger away from you. Isaiah 12 verse 1. I will give thanks to you, Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is now turned away that you may comfort me. That's what Christ is willing to do. How does Christ receive the penitent believer, the one who has fallen and backslidden? In love in mercy and in grace. But then the second question we want to consider, what was Christ doing all this time? What was he doing during this period of time in which she was backslidden and in the period of time following that when she was seeking him but couldn't find him? Well, the answer is in verses 11 to 13. There's a bit of a disagreement here in terms of who is speaking. And remember, I refer you back to the very first sermon I said, uh, we have here in our Bible, in our pew Bible, uh, headings that give us some helpful hints of who's speaking. 
There are times in which it's 100% certain that it is a male person speaking. There are times in which it's 100% certain it's a female person speaking. And so we know whether it's Christ speaking or whether it's the Christian or the church. There are times in which it's in the plural. We know it's, it's a few people speaking. But here we have uh, various people thinking different, different thoughts. And, and in our Bible, it has it as she is speaking here. You see that as the heading there above verse 11. I told you at the time, at first sermon, there will be times in which I'll disagree. Uh, and this is one of those times. And uh, if I can just explain very briefly a rationale for that. I think the best thing for us to do is to assume the same person is speaking until it is painstakingly obvious that it has changed speaker. Otherwise, we could be taking any verse and just deciding for ourselves, well, this is the man, that's the woman, and just backwards and forwards. Uh, I don't think we have that much liberty. Rather, we should expect the same person is speaking until the Spirit of God makes it obvious by changing the gender, showing us that it's speaking to the beloved or speaking to the love, and so on. And I think that's the case here. I think it is still the same person speaking. Who is it that says, I went down to the nut orchard? Well, it's Christ. It's Christ who went out to the orchard. And remember, this idea of going out and seeking fruit, that is something that Christ does. If you look back um, at chapter 6, verse 2, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. Well, it's a very similar picture here. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of a valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. That's what Jesus does, isn't it? Jesus comes down to the visible church to look and see, is there fruit? Jesus is today looking down into our midst to see what is the fruit in your life and in mine. Are there nuts in the nut orchard? Are there blossoms in the valley? Are the vines budding? Are the pomegranates in bloom? Jesus has a right to expect fruit from your life and from mine. And he comes down. Wouldn't that revolutionize the way we view public worship? If we thought every week that Christ is coming down to see us, to meet with us, and to examine us. He's coming to see fruit. But as he was doing that, remember this is what he was doing When she was backsliding, he came to see that. But verse 12, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. This is a picture of of Christ being suddenly seized, as it were. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots. Uh, This is not how we speak about Christ normally. But we, we know that this is an allegory. And therefore, there are certain expressions that are used that we wouldn't normally use in describing Jesus. Jesus is aware of everything. He can't be taken by surprise. He's divine. He knows all things. And yet here, he says, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots. He was taken. He was seized. A better, and perhaps you have footnotes there, a better uh, way to put this, among the chariots of Ami Nadib. That's what I hope you've got that in the footnote there. Uh, instead of saying the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince, it's the chariots of Aminadib. And that means simply the chariots of my noble people or my willing people. I think that's a better translation. 
than what we have here. That word is the same word used in Psalm 110, verse 3. A willing people in the day of power will come to you. Do you remember that? In in Christ's day of power, in a day when his word comes by the Spirit and it's blessed, then what happens? His people respond with willingness, voluntarily, coming to him. And that's what we see here. The chariots of his people come, almost taking Christ by surprise. Christ has not lost his desire for fellowship, but now he's overcome by her desire. For fellowship. But I want us to ask this question. Who was it that initiated this? Is it the case that Christ has been far and distant. And that she has come and initiated this restoration. Or has Christ been working behind the scenes? Well look at verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return. That we may look upon you. Behind the scenes Christ has been at work. That's what we know from the Bible. He is sovereign over all things. And any time that we return to him, it is because he is drawing us in his grace. This word return is such an important word in the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament word for repentance, to return. The opposite of it is backsliding and apostasy, which are just two different degrees of the same thing, to slide back to go in the wrong direction, and that leads to apostasy in which you've abandoned the faith. But repentance is to return. It's to come back up that road of apostasy, to come back from the backsliding, and to return to the Lord your God, because he will heal you. Christ here is eager for the backslidden believer to return to him and to be restored. It's interesting what he calls her here. He calls her O Shulamite. I don't know if I've used that word uh, before, uh, but quite often when we, you read about the Song of Solomon, it talks about Solomon and the Shulamite, uh, which is the feminine form of Solomon. He's calling her after his own name, Shulamite. In a similar way to how we are called Christians, after the name of Christ. We are little Christians in this world. We are named After Christ, his name is on our foreheads and his identity is how we are known. You see, Christ has not disowned her. Christ has not abandoned her. He calls her to return. And notice the eagerness in the fact that he says return four times over. He could have just simply said repent and that would be enough. But instead he says return, 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 return. Christ is pleading with her that she would come back because he wants her fellowship once again. Friends, the Lord Jesus is eager for you to return to him. When you fall, he is eager for you to be back up on your feet and to be seeking you. He wants your fellowship, not because he needs it. He's not lonely without you. He's not at a loss He can go to his nut orchard and seek fruit in other places. But he longs for fellowship. Because isn't that why he died? Didn't he die on the cross to give us access to the Father? Didn't he die on the cross to reconcile us? To to bring us into unity? Hosea 6 says this. Come, let us return to the Lord. 
For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Friends, do you believe that that is how God deals with us? He strikes us, he tears us so that he may heal us. God can sometimes be hard on us and it's well deserved. But for the Christian, it's for our good that he may heal us. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage. He doesn't give the cold shoulder. He doesn't hold her at an arm's length. He doesn't prescribe the Roman Catholic penance that she can earn her way back by degrees into his presence. He simply brings her back. He pours his love out into her. He pours out his grace. He calls her my love. He calls her after his own name, O Shulamite. She is his. I am my beloved. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Dear friends, learn from this, this lesson of restoration. Christ is willing to receive you. Amen.